Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What's going on, everybody? I am so stoked about this episode. I know I say that every week, but listen... If you know anything about me, you know that I am pretty perpetually stoked about everything. Well, this episode is no exception, and this episode, I believe, is exceptional in the fact that it is incredible. So I had the opportunity to sit down with my friend Thomas Wood, Tommy Wood. He has two doctoral degrees. As you'll hear at the beginning of this episode, he did an MD at Oxford, and then went back and did a PhD because he is just a curious, super intelligent guy. And he and I have lifted together. We have talked about all kinds of cool things. Every time I hang out with Tommy, I learn a bunch. I learn so much. And so we've talked about the carnivore diet together. We've talked about ketogenic diets. We've talked about heavy metals. We talk about functional medicine. I am so stoked to have him on this podcast with me because we dove into basically everything that I wanted to talk about with him and kind of pick his brain. We talked about testosterone and what it means if your sex hormone binding globulin is high. Maybe that's not the bad thing that we always think it is. We talked about the microbiome and what different organisms might mean. And some of these people on carnivore diets or people with idiopathic constipation, what organisms we might be looking for and how to treat that. We talked a little bit about heavy metals, how to detox them. We talked about TMAO, and we're able to break down a recent study that came out confirming the things that many of us in the health space have been saying for a while, which is that this is not something to be concerned about. If you heard the last episode I did with my buddy Nathan, where I talked about carnivore critiques and answered them in detail, we went into significant detail about why TMAO is probably not a problem and the article that Tommy and I talk about in this podcast suggests the same thing. So buckle up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, buckle up. You are going to learn so much in this episode, and I really think it is clearly worth your time. So a little more about Tommy. He's an elite level professional nerd who has coached world-class athletes in a dozen sports. As you'll hear in this episode, his undergraduate degree is from a little university called Cambridge. His medical degree is from a little university called Oxford. (laughs) He did a PhD in physiology and neuroscience from the University of Oslo. He's a research assistant at the University of Washington right now. He's a research scientist at the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition. He's on the scientific advisory board of Hinsa Performance. He says he is also the chief snake officer, the CSO. This is Tommy's bio that I'm reading, but he's a funny guy. At the Costa Rican Center for Bro Research, as you'll hear in this episode, Tommy had a run-in with a very poisonous snake and lived to tell about it. Tommy lives in Seattle with his wife, Elizabeth, and their two goofy boxers, and I can attest to that. Every time I go to Tommy's house, his dogs lick the heck out of me. They're amazing dogs. In his spare time, he can usually be found cooking, reading, lifting something heavy, these are all true things. So that is Tommy Wood. Now, you guys should also sign up for my newsletter because it's amazing. 
and I want to share information with you about it. So you can go to my website, which is paulsaladinomd.com front slash newsletter and sign up. I've had three issues out by now, and they are a labor of love. I talk about an article that I like and why it's relevant. Usually it's an article that's kind of relevant to what I talk about on the podcast. I talk about stuff I like, products, although in the spirit of minimalism, I may end up talking about people I'm following or books I've read, but the first couple of issues of the newsletter have been including things that I like. I talked about my balance board called a goof board. I talked about these shoes I've got called zero shoes. These are not things I'm associated with thus far, though I may talk about things I am affiliated with in the future, but I will also talk about who's on the podcast and what's going on. I'll talk about podcasts that I have been on and what's happening with me personally. Like for instance, this week, I am gearing up to move to San Diego. And I got to go wake surfing today. So that was amazing. Anyway, we'll talk about that stuff in the newsletter too. I think you guys will find it valuable. Let me know if you have input and I will try and make it as good as possible. Paul Saladino, MD, from slash newsletter. As always, this podcast is sponsored by Ancestral Supplements. I dig these guys. You guys know this. These are my buddies. They do amazing work. They talk about cool stuff on their website and they make amazing products. One of the products in the Ancestral Supplements line that I am most excited about is the brain. As you guys know, what you've heard me talk about is that I want to eat brain. I have not eaten real brain, but I take their beef brain supplements myself. Included in this beef brain are neurotrophic factors, factors that support the survival of existing neurons and encourage the growth of new neurons, as well as sphingomyelin, which plays a central role in the myelin sheath. Those are the little wrappings of the cell, of the neuronal sheaths and cell signaling. I think it's amazing that you can get brain and heart and pancreas and thymus and cartilage and liver from these guys. A lot of people do not want to eat liver. And in that case, I think they make a great supplement. They source it from New Zealand. They are grass-fed. They do everything nose to tail, bone marrow, brain, Inconvenient gelatin capsules, you don't have to taste it. So check these guys out, ancestralsupplements.com. Ancestral supplements are putting back in what the modern world has left out. This is so true. It's just so interesting to me that the foods that we eat as modernized humans now are really, in my opinion, a shadow of the quality of the foods that we have eaten for centuries as humans. And we have gotten too squeamish about things like liver and pancreas and brain. And I love that these guys make it easier to put these things back in and get all of these magical things, semi-magical, not even magical, real good things back in your diet. I have an affiliate code. It'll get you 10% off. It is Saladino MD, S-A-L-A-D-I-N-O-M-D. Get you 10% off your order. They'll know I sent you and it'll continue to support that podcast. And I will keep making good stuff for you guys. So that is Ancestral Supplements. I also love my Juve I have an affiliate with them. It is www.juvejovv.com, front slash Paul. I use it every day and every night. I think it improves my sleep. I've seen other people post about it improving their HRV and REM sleep. Check out Juve. I really like their near-infrared and red lights. I actually bought one before they um, got connected with me, and I'm super stoked to be promoting them as well. So check out Juve. Check out Ancestral Supplements. Check out my newsletter. And check out Tommy Wood, you guys, because this episode is going to blow your mind and you are going to love it. 
And I think you're going to be much better for having listened to it. So enjoy, 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 my friends. Here we go. What is up, you guys? I am so stoked. I am sitting here with my man, the smartest Viking that I know, <laughs> Tommy Wood. Thanks for coming on the show, brother. Oh, thanks for, thanks for having me. In fact, well, thanks for joining me in my dining room in Seattle. I know. We're sitting in Tommy's dining room in Linwood. It's not a very warm day in Seattle, which makes me a little frustrated because I am ready for the summer to actually happen. But we are here, and every time I hang out with Tommy, I learn so much. So I'm so stoked to have him on today. We also lift weights, and then he makes me feel humbled. Um, But I'm trying to get stronger, and you guys may have seen some Instagram stories about that. So we are going to talk about all kinds of really cool stuff today. This is going to be an amazing podcast, you guys. Put your seatbelt on. You are going to learn a ton, and you're going to have all kinds of questions answered. Before we get into that, though, Tommy has a really cool story and an amazing accent. So I want to—I want you to just tell us a little bit about how you got to be where you are, your numerous doctoral degrees, mm. the fact that you went back to medical school. Like this guy has just been a student his whole life, which is probably why he's so freaking smart. Yeah. So that's exactly that's exactly uh, it. I have spent maybe five years of my entire life in gainful employment, and the rest of it as a student. <laughs> Um, so I started out, um, so I, I grew up in the UK mainly, uh, and I start, started out, did undergrad at Cambridge, uh, specialized in biochemistry, and didn't really know what to do next. I had a friend of mine who was like, oh, I think I'm going to apply to med school. So I was like, oh yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So I um, applied to med school and got in. So I did med school at Oxford straight after my undergrad. And then I worked as a doctor for a couple of years um, in London, and then an old undergrad supervisor of mine, I'd worked in her lab um, for a couple of summers when I was an undergrad. She was like, oh, I've now moved to Norway. Um, come and do a PhD with me. I was like, okay, that sounds fun. I'll do that. And so this is essentially how my Who story goes. goes. <laughs> Nobody does. <laughs> Nobody does a PhD after they go to med. Like you were in, you were a doctor, you were working. And he goes back to do a PhD. That says something about his curiosity. And that's amazing. Yeah. And it was a huge amount of fun. And that was kind of the time when I really got to sit down and uh, become intimately, uh, start an intimate relationship with PubMed. That's basically where all this, <laughs> where all this started. And kind of b- before then, both as an undergrad at a med school, um, I'd been re- started to get really interested in um, human nutrition and performance. Uh, did a lot of uh, rowing, uh, ultra marathons, uh, some strength, you know, strength competitions, and sort of looking at you know how to improve human health and performance. And at the same time, while I was in med school, I also did a bit of stuff. Uh, it was like a family project with my uh, stepdad and my stepbrother who had multiple sclerosis. So we spent, I don't know, the best part of a year basically dissecting all the different things that might be involved in the etiology of multiple sclerosis. And basically functional medicine fell out. And I'd never heard of any of that kind of stuff before. But that sort of really introduced me into you know the aspects of uh the environment and diet and and health and so that kind of started then you know maybe a decade ago and when i was doing my phd and i had time to sit down and research things which you don't when you're a junior doctor as you well know um uh i sort of got back into this stuff started a blog started a podcast started working with a company over here uh, called nourish balance thrive which works mainly with athletes with health various health issues gut issues but some some, some other things as well and then uh, during my phd i met my now wife and she got a job as a professor here in in seattle she's a chemical engineer and then when i finished my phd i came over um 
did a postdoc period whilst also continuing to work with these various athletic and disease populations sort of as my side hustle. And um, now I'm basically a full-time professor at the University of Washington, but still you know, work with those people um, and try and learn as much as I can and figure out because you know, there's still a huge amount that we need to know and that we don't. There is so much to learn, but that is such an interesting thing because I will agree with you completely. As a physician, it's very hard to do research and even to do PubMed searches, yeah. I have not become as intimate with PubMed as I would like to be. You know, mm-hmm. I haven't gotten to date PubMed as much as you have. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I want to date PubMed more. And, you know, thankfully, the last year of my residency has been fairly relaxed. Don't tell my residency director that. <laughs> as when this podcast comes out, you guys, I will be done with residency. Vamoose. Yeah, I will congrats. be. Uh, thank you. I will be on my way to San Diego to start my career as a professional surfer. <laughs> uh, I'm a horrible surfer, by the way. But, I've just noticed that it's very hard as a physician in your physician training because you're so overwhelmed with seeing patients and trying to put out fires and save lives and just trying to manage day-to-day work that it's very difficult to find the time to do actual research to gain the knowledge to further that knowledge. So you going back and doing that PhD was probably, I mean, I'm sure you were curious before that, but that was probably the magical secret sauce that like sparked the thing and gave you this dedicated time to just become super brilliant Viking. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's exactly it. I mean, without that, I'd probably be some uh, stressed uh, anesthesiologist, anesthetist, as we call them in the UK. Um, and yeah, would I have found the time to get into this stuff? And I, you know, I was interested in it. I was the first UK-based person to be on what they called uh, the Paleo Physicians Network, which was something that Rob Wolf started, again, a long time ago. It doesn't really exist anymore. Um, but, you know, would I have ever had the time to really get into this stuff? No, I don't think I would. And so right now you are this like treasure to the community because you have medical training, you understand how things work from a medical perspective, and yet you've had the time and dedicated yeah. all this time to do this research. And so that's what I love. And you guys, we're going to dig into some cool stuff and you're going to be amazed at the kind of stuff we're talking about. So that is amazing. I didn't know you did ultra marathons. Oh, yeah. So I've done uh, four or five now. Uh, the Some multiple marathons in multiple de- over multiple days off ro- off road so off road racing was definitely more of my forte because i'm not built like an ultra endurance athlete as you know um but when the you know when the trail starts to go up and you actually need some strength then i could actually keep up with some of the guys who are a lot faster than me on a flat road um and the one triathlon i've done to date was the world's first ever fully off road ironman triathlon um I was one of only 40 people to finish of 250 starters. And then I spent three days in probably something approaching acute kidney failure, hallucinating. And then after that, I promised my family I'd never do ultra endurance racing again. (laughs) Was that just from the race? Do you think you just got rhabdo and gave yourself? Yeah. So I didn't, I definitely didn't, I didn't pee like Coca-Cola, like the traditional, but I definitely had some kind of nephrotic, you know, I like, all the protein was coming out of my urine. I could see it. Um, and yeah, I did, and I couldn't hold, I couldn't rehydrate. I just felt like I just couldn't keep any water in me. So my kidneys were definitely not happy. Your glomeruli um, were just a sieve. Yeah, exactly. And they, but they came around and I've been fine ever since. But that was, yeah, that was my last, that was my last ultra endurance event. But I, I did that after I finished rowing. Um, and then I also, you know, after, I also uh, sort of alternated between ultra endurance and powerlifting, just kind of for fun. But. Those are not two things that people usually <laughs> alternate between. No. You get like skinny guys doing ultra endurance and then like strong guys. And for those of you that don't know what Tommy looks like, he's a tall, strong guy. He's not yeah. a skinny guy. 
So that's those are usually not the two sides of the same coin. That's interesting. I used to do ultras. Yeah. I had a year plus of ultras, and I was much skinnier at the time. They were brutal, and I'm sure that after some of those races, I had kidney issues. I remember being an ultra runner at one point and being excited when I peed blood. So I had hematuria <laughs> after a training run, and it almost became a badge of courage. I like texted my friends, and I said, oh, I just peed blood, and they were like, that's amazing. Oh, man. It was such a warped perspective. <laughs> there was something called March hematuria, which I probably just had traumatic hematuria from the running, and it's clearly not a good thing, you guys, but I am way beyond those days at this point in my life. And Tommy is a survivor. He was recently bitten by a viper. Yeah. I was in uh, in Costa Rica visiting my friend uh, Ben House, who's just one of the world's most generally awesome people. And yeah, it was on the last day I was bitten by a Ferdelance, otherwise known as the ultimate pit viper. There was some uh, some herpetologist that got bitten by one back in the day. I think it may have killed him. Um and yeah, I spent 11 days in the Costa Rican healthcare system. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up in the UK, part of the NHS. I believe in socialized medicine. And that's what they have there and probably saved my legs. So, I, you know, again, uh, and they don't have a huge amount of resources, but what they do with it is, is really great. So I was definitely uh, very thankful for that. And you've come a long way in the recovery and are yeah. now... And now I'm, I'm fine. I think my strength is pretty much back where it was. And yeah, I mean, I've, yeah, I feel fine. I just have a small scar on my leg. And it was, it was probably touch and go for a while. I had a really bad infection and then reacted to the antivenom and needed intravenous steroids and all this stuff. But Didn't you react to the vank they gave you too, maybe? Yeah. So that was, it was, it was um, at, at some point about three, maybe, no, four days in, I got red and itchy. And that's either a symptom of vancomycin, red man syndrome, or... It's a delayed uh, hypersensitivity to the the horse serum and the antivenom. It may have been both. Oh, my God, dude. Oh, my God. Well, I'm glad that you're sitting here with both <laughs> legs. Yeah. And that we can deadlift at some point in the future. That's, I mean, yeah, this guy's incredible. So let's dig into it. There are so many cool things we want to get into. Let's start with the gut because you and I talk a lot about the gut. You've taught me a lot about this. I think the microbiome is something that it, people are always curious about, mm. whether they're carnivore or keto or omnivore. The microbiome is talked a lot about. And I think that the overall context of this discussion is the fact that we don't know shit about the <laughs> microbiome. But, we, but Tommy is a great person to dialogue a little bit with about what we do know yeah. and how we can start to kind of piece this together. So I think we could probably address this. Before we jump on this podcast, we were having a little bit of a conversation about idiopathic constipation. Mm. So I think that might be a good place to start, and we can see where we go in terms of the gut and what we know in certain organisms. Some of these might be a little esoteric for people, but follow along. The reason I think this is an interesting conversation is because there is a famous paper in 2012 from the World Journal of Gastroenterology that many people, people have heard me talk about in previous podcasts in which the removal of fiber causes the complete resolution of idiopathic constipation or constipation without a known cause in a moderately sized group of people. I think the experimental group was in the, it was about 20 people. They had three groups, about 20 people. One group was zero fiber, one group with low fiber, and one group with like a moderate or a regular amount of fiber. And then striking finding in that study was that the group with no fiber had complete resolution of their constipation, gas, and bloating, which really flies in the face of much of the teaching today in medical schools and in medical offices that you need more fiber to poop or that if you have trouble with constipation, you should take more fiber. And so that is something that I think is fascinating. And many people, when they go carnivore or keto and they decrease the fiber, do have an improvement in constipation symptoms. Mm -hmm. There is a group of people, however, 
that I'm aware of who either have idiopathic constipation before carnivore and they go carnivore and it doesn't resolve, or sometimes people go carnivore and they get constipated. Now, when people transition to a carnivore diet, they're eating a lot less food in, in the, in, well, that's not true. They may be eating a similar amount of food, but there's less plant fiber. Mm -hmm. So there's actually less stool. It seems like some people poop less and that's not the constipation we're talking about here. There definitely are people in the carnivore community who really get technically constipated. And you had some really great thoughts about what might be going on there and thoughts about idiopathic constipation in general. Yeah. The, the fiber thing is, is really interesting. And, and there's been this sort of tyranny of more fiber is going to help you poop more. And I think it's becoming a little bit more nuanced now as people realize that probably the insoluble fiber is the real problem there, you know, and it's kind of the, the analogy being that if you have a blocked pipe, just like stuffing more stuff into the pipe isn't going to make the pipe unblock. Um, but for some people, soluble fiber may maybe still have, have, has a role, but it, it definitely goes both ways. Some people fiber can be beneficial and other people, it really just does make it worse. And there's a number of things that you could look for. And when, when, um, when people start trying to di like fully dissect the gut microbiota, to me, it still feels like tassiography, which is re reading tea leaves. One of my favorite words. That was the best word that you <laughs> told me last time. I was like, I'm going to use that. I'm, I'm glad you reminded me. Yeah, so, so it feels a lot like tassiography, and I, I, think, it, I think it still is. Um, but when sort of I go looking at, at, at the gut, I, I think there are a number of pathogens and or uh, dysbiotic elements that can certainly be, be thought to have a causative role. And so... Um, Methane predominant um, Archaeobacter, like Methanobrevibacter, uh, I think those definitely have um, have a place in terms of people with idiopathic constipation. And there was a really interesting. This makes me think of an interesting paper that um, Lauren Peterson published a couple of years ago, where she looked at the the gut microbiota of elite cyclists, and in um, the highest level uh, cyclists, they had a high amount of um, methanobrevibacter, and it's probably because it helps augment their carbohydrate metabolism. Uh, but you probably know of a lot of endurance athletes who can't poop unless they run. And so the gut microbiota definitely shifts to help them perform, but then if you're not exercising, then it has a, a downside. So I think that's almost certainly what's happening in those guys. And I know a lot of really competitive endurance athletes who, if they're not running or moving or cycling frequently, they can't poop. And that's probably part of it because they, they shift towards more methanobrevibacter. And as you mentioned, so just to translate for you guys, methane is methane. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, try to, I'll try to add the, the English versions of some of these words. So methane, we're talking about methane. And what's interesting about methanobacter is that it's a methane-producing organism. And what the audience may not know is that when we're thinking about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or irritable bowel syndrome, often we get overgrowth of methane-producing mm -hmm. organisms in constipation-predominant presentations, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that it's, that it's felt, it's fairly well-established in the literature, and I think there's a, a lot of people would agree with the notion that it's overproduction of methane or methane that, <laughs> that can have a bit of a paralytic role in the gut. And so when we think of SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or IBS-C, which may have a lot of overlap. These, these may be similar, perhaps the same conditions, who knows? But in those constipation-predominant syndromes, we're always thinking, is there a methane overproduction in the gut? And mm -hmm. is there an organism like methanobracter present? So in these or, I mean, these athletes you're describing, they have this carbohydrate load in their diets. The methane, the methanobacter, the methanobacter helps them metabolize that, but then maybe the downside is that it causes this yeah, constipation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
And I think when you have, we were talking about, again, we talked about the thing that where you always get out the really interesting stuff before the podcast starts. And then the, the listeners have to go, man, I wish we'd have been there before the podcast started. So we'll try and go back over everything we talked about. But in people who have this idiopathic constipation, some kind of empirical treatment protocol is probably worth trying because they, like like you were saying, some people, they constipated before they switch their diet, maybe it improves or they get diarrhea for a period of time and then it just goes right back where it was, even if it was a dramatic shift in the, in, in the diet itself. So at some point you have to break that cycle. And so that's, you know, when you're working in a sort of a functional medicine type practice that you might try some empirical treatment just to sort of break that cycle. Either herbal or... Herbal or regular, yeah. frank antibiotics. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that's what I've seen. And we were talking about a, a case that I was aware of where someone had had pre-existing constipation. They went carnivore and they had typical carnivore diarrhea in the beginning, which is a common thing as people transition to a carnivore diet. They get some sort of, either it's clearing of the gut flora or inadequate absorption of the bile acids in the small intestine that causes some catharsis or some loose stool. And then they went right back to constipation. Mm-hmm. And Tommy made this astute observation that maybe they just have an organism in there that's kind of paralytic. And in that case, I thought, yeah, that's really interesting. What Tommy is suggesting is in those cases, we might really just need to go in and look at the gut with tests like a GI map, a GI FX, or a U-biome, look for some of these organisms that may be causing the constipation or just do empiric treatment with antibiotics or herbs specifically aimed at that. So that's a really interesting thing. And I've often thought when people DM me on Instagram or send me messages like, hey, I'm really constipated on carnivore, I've often responded, hey, there's something else going on in your gut. You need more, um, you need more investigation because what I have seen working with many, many carnivores now and speaking to you know hundreds of people on Instagram is that most people have like beautiful poops and they yeah. want to send me photos of their beautiful poops and just tell me the high praises of their poops. And so it's, I don't believe it's the carnivore diet that's causing the constipation. I think that carnivore diet doesn't always fix it, unfortunately. Yeah. Sometimes it might be helpful, but if people have a pre-existing issue in the gut, you might just have to get rid of that. And there are some clients that I've actually seen who have had, um, this is pretty common, they have C. diff or they have C. diff toxin and the carnivore diet doesn't get rid of that. Mm -hmm. It stays there and they still may have symptoms. So the carnivore diet is not going to fix dysbiosis. It's not going to always fix if you have bad bugs living in your gut. For some people, it may relieve some symptoms that are possibly related to excess fiber. Yeah. But it's, I think that Tommy and I would agree that if people have persistent GI symptoms when they go carnivore or low carb or keto, it's worth looking in there. And even if they're not, even if they're just on a mixed diet, you got to look at the gut and see what's going on. Yeah. One of the things that that we, we often got at a uh, company, Nourish Balance Drive, where I was working is that people would, you know, we were like the keto athlete people. And a lot of people would switch to keto. They'd see a lot of benefits, but there was always a but. Like something didn't quite, that didn't quite fix itself or you know you know something else got worse and the gut was almost always where we found and you know largely solved um uh issues and it's just worth remembering that when people go to these restrictive diets and i'm and i mean restrictive in terms of what the medical establishment would call them when people go to restrictive diet uh, diets it's usually because of a health condition and the diet itself maybe just isn't enough to fix that and at some point you have to intervene so that it can then continue normally did you say the gut was actually the butt or the butt was the gut? Did I say butt? <laughs> yeah. You said the, no, you said they have a butt. They're feeling good. Uh, but they have the a butt. butt is the <laughs> gut. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. The butt was the gut. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. When we get together, you know, I, my 12-year-old comes out. <laughs> so, the, yeah, the GI stuff is super interesting. Now, the other thing that, from a gut perspective that we've talked a little bit about, is the overgrowth of the gram-negative anaerobes, mm. proteobacteria, these kind of genus, genuses, geni. Phyla. 
genera, yeah, <laughs> phyla, um, and and the connections with possible postprandial endotoxemia. Yeah, let's talk a little bit of that. Yeah, it's, it's, this was this was where I, I really dug into this stuff was was because of these you know people who come to keto and say made me feel really great, but and so this was the the first time I really dug into it, and there's some really interesting data on. Uh, postprandial or just general baseline endotoxemia. And that's um, sort of go to a higher level. Endotoxins exist in the walls of gram-negative bacteria. And a large proportion of the bacteria in your gut are gram-negative. Gram, whether something's gram-negative or positive is just based on the way you stain them in a lab to, to see them. So it's kind of like an, it's an old like medical terminology. Uh, but these guys have endotoxins in their walls. And some... Um, in the in the phylum bacteria uh, bacteroidetes, um, they can actually have a beneficial modulating effect on the immune system, and some in the phyla proteobacteria can have these pro-inflammatory effects. And so that's things like E. coli, Salmonella, um, Enterobacter, Citrobacter, uh, H. pylori, um, and Helicobacter are in there as well. And these endotoxins, you know, activate the immune system. And then you get all the symptoms that you would have some kind of uh, inflammation. And there, there were a number of people, again, who we would work with would be like, you know, I drink that bulletproof coffee and, you know, I, I wouldn't feel the clarity that Dave Asprey told me I'd get. Um, I instead just feel kind of brain foggy and, and inflamed. And that's because liquid fat is an endotoxin delivery system. So if, if you have an overgrowth or a, um, like a dysbiosis of those, particularly of those kinds of bugs in the gut, then again, you know, keto can be beneficial, but you know, unless you find some way to kind of get on top of those or cause a, a shift, you're going to get some of those symptoms. And it's not in everybody. And like, it's definitely not me saying that fat is bad for you or anything like that. But in some people where the gut is the core issue, then you know, that kind of dietary approach can, can make things worse. It's so interesting. So what Tommy is contrasting here are two phyla, the proteobacteria and the bacteroidetes. And he made a very interesting point that I had heard Paul Mason talk about as well, that lipopolysaccharide from different phyla can behave differently in the body. Mm -hmm. Generally, when we think about lipopolysaccharide or endotoxin, we think about it as being all bad. But as you're noting, some of the, the phyla, like bacteroidetes, can actually produce a lip lipopolysaccharide that is tonic to the immune system or may have a role in the body that's yeah. not necessarily a negative thing. Yeah. But generally... As Tommy's noting, the proteobacteria are the bad actors. These are the worst guys. These are the gram-negative anaerobes that are probably just always causing problems. They're really not helping us. And when we see them on gut testing, we think that's a problem. So if you were to do a GI map on someone or a GI effects, some of these gut tests that we do as functional medicine doctors, mm -hmm. and you saw an overgrowth of proteobacteria or you know gram-negative anaerobes, would you caution that people against liquid fat, or would you at least historically look to say, "Hey, do you, how do you like? Do you do you do you drink bulletproof coffee? Do you do you use olive oil by the glassful? Do you have lots of tallow and liquid saturated fat?" Yeah, and it's really interesting because when you're there's there's a really nice I think it's a Finnish paper where they looked at people with differing levels of metabolic health. So from people who are completely healthy, and then as they accumulated the number of signs or symptoms of metabolic syndrome then um, their circulating endotoxin went up. And then the way that they checked that over, over time was they gave them heavy cream to drink. And then they saw their endotoxin go up. And if it's, uh, if the more, the closer you are to metabolic disease, then sort of the bigger the spike and, and the, the, the larger the area under the curve. So, um, and 
that goes both ways. It could be that the bugs themselves are causing those issues, and there's certainly there's been a lot of sort of mechanistic type studies done in animals to kind of unpick some of that. But it could also be that when you have metabolic disease, then your gut is more permeable, and more of that stuff's going to cross anyway. So it certainly goes, it certainly goes in both directions. Um, but yeah, with somebody with that kind of history, uh, there are a couple of different uh, approaches, and some people did really well if we put them on a super low fat diet, and like sometimes that's just the therapeutic thing that we had to do, and it and it really helped. Um, and then again, there are some depending on the bug. So if it's H. pylori, uh, there are certain protocols. If it's if it's some of the other ones, there are some either herbal or antibiotic protocols. Depending, we usually start with herbs and escalate up as we need to. Um, although some of the herbs can be you know, just as detrimental in terms of their antimicrobial effects. So it's not like saying the herbs are, are benign and the antibiotics are, are malign. It's it's actually they could they can both do both. So so we generally do that, and and often we'd see people. Uh, the idea is that you can then start introducing fat back, right? The if you're on that kind of diet, but you're particularly in the short term, it really helps control symptoms in that sort of in that subset of patients. And so, when you're saying metabolic syndrome, <clears throat> you're describing sort of a pre-diabetic condition, and yeah. you said as they had more markers of metabolic syndrome, these would be like hip to waist ratio, high blood pressure, low HDL, high triglycerides, yeah. all these kind of markers. So as people accumulated those markers, they saw more postprandial endotoxinemia when they gave heavy cream yeah so this is an interesting thing and one of the one of the ways that people throw shade at a carnivore diet or at uh, ketogenic diets is by saying saturated fat creates these lipid rafts that will increase postprandial endotoxinemia and so i think this is a really interesting discussion to kind of clarify this now in some of the papers you sent me it was pretty clear that all liquid fat even olive oil yeah. would create this effect and so I wanted to bring this up in the podcast I did with Stephen Gundry, but I didn't have a chance. That one should be out hopefully soon. You know, I respect Stephen's work. And sometimes he says that vegetables are simply there as a delivery system for olive oil. I'm not sure <laughs> should we, that we should just be drinking olive oil, nor do I really believe personally that olive oil is a magical uh, unicorn fart. But um, I think that it's it, it, any of the liquid fats in people that have underlying gut dysbiosis mm -hmm. or the wrong type of bacteria in their gut, this gram-negative overgrowth could potentially increase postprandial endotoxin in the blood, which, as Tommy is suggesting, is associated with inflammation triggering the immune system. So it really has to do with the terrain and what's in your gut. And in, like Tommy's suggesting, people drinking bulletproof coffee with butter or ghee or tallow or any saturated fat or even olive oil could push this, this endotoxin across the gut. So all the liquid fat, you have to be careful with that in people. Yeah, I kind of, if you're thinking about, you know, if you're interested in carnivore or any kind of ancestral approach to diet, think about when you would get refined fat in the diet, literally never. And that includes everything from saturated to, you know, polyunsaturated. So I think <clears throat> that's just not something we're that well adapted to necessarily. Um, but again, it, it, it gets fairly complicated. So if you had a lot of bacteroides in your gut, then they may be modulating any other endotoxins that are coming across and maybe you don't get an effect. So it's not just the bad actors in there, it's what else is in there. And other things like intense exercise causes increased endotoxins to come across the gut. Um, and in in uh, athletes, they have higher levels of anti-endotoxin antibodies because they're, you know, they're, it's, a, it's an adaptation to, to those coming across. And Sadly, there's no way to reliably measure endotoxins in people, but there are some functional medicine companies that do an endotoxin antibody level, um, which is essentially useless because it doesn't tell you any because it doesn't tell you anything about all the other things going on. So if you look at an athlete before and after a marathon, 
their endotoxin antibodies go down because what happens is the endotoxins come across the gut, the antibodies bind to them, and then they're like sequestered and cleared. So trying to integrate all of that stuff based on some of the tests that exist, just uh, you just essentially can't do it. So you know when people are, are, are trying to sell you tests for endotoxin because you heard it on a podcast, um, just save your money. Yeah, generally, yeah. For a lot of the tests, you want to <laughs> save your money. We'll talk about maybe some of the tests that we think are valuable. When we get to talking about testosterone, we'll talk about some of the limitations of, of uh, some of the tests for testosterone in the urine. We'll get to that soon, you guys. That's a teaser. But I love this discussion. It's so interesting for me. Just for people that may be doing bulletproof coffee, that may be just drenching their food in tallow, drenching their food in olive oil, and not finding a good effect or having a bad effect or not finding brain clarity, maybe finding brain fog to kind of step back. One of the things I've been experimenting more with recently to get my fat, because I... As people may know, I've been experimenting with a little bit less protein, a little more fat in my carnivore diet. I've been kind of trying to track my fasting glucose and then subsequently after a few months, my A1C and some of these other measures on a little bit lower protein. I'm not doing low protein by any stretch of the imagination. I'm doing probably 100 to 120 grams of protein a day, but that's low relative to where I was. I previously have eaten you know, three plus pounds of meat a day. I was over 300 grams of protein. Mm-hmm. And what I, I talked about this in the last podcast I did with Nathan, where we answered carnivore critiques. I talked about the fact that in myself and in other carnivores, I saw fasting glucose rise yeah. into the 90s or even above 100 sometimes. And I thought, maybe that's not such a good thing. So I've been experimenting with getting more fat. Now, the trouble becomes, if I'm going to eat a pound or a pound and a half of meat a day, well, I'm a, I'm, I really am enjoying carnivore <laughs> diet. Where do I get the rest of the fat in the day? I don't want to drink tallow. I don't want to drink olive oil. So I've really enjoyed getting trimmings from the butchers and actually just getting real fat. As Tommy is noting, we would never have seen rendered fat or very rarely as humans. So my hope is that this is a little more evolutionarily consistent way to get the fat in my diet and that it also has collagenous tissue, which I think of as is good. It's a little chewier, but I've been eating a lot of these grass-fed trimmings. So now everybody's going to hear me talk about this and nobody's going to be able to find grass-fed trimmings on the web, but that's okay because people are probably going to enjoy it quite a bit. So that's a really cool thing, way that I've been doing to mm-hmm. get my fat. The, let's let's move on to one other thing, which I this is going to be just like three amazing things to start off this podcast. On the last podcast I did, I talked about TMAO, and right before we started this podcast, my buddy Nathan, who I did the last podcast with, he was my sort of assistant on that podcast, though he's a brilliant researcher himself. We talked about TMAO and listen to that podcast if you guys are curious. He sent me a link to a study that was recently posted. And this is a really interesting study. So for people that don't know, TMAO is trimethylamine oxide. And it has been widely, I think incorrectly, suggested to be associated with heart disease. And as I was talking about with Tommy before the podcast, it's mostly been epidemiologic. It's been observational epidemiology, not experimental epidemiology. Neither Tommy or I is aware of any mechanistic studies or any interventional studies Mm -hmm. showing the TMAO causes cardiovascular disease. But this study, and I'll let Tommy, Tommy talk about it, really highlights one of the things that I was talking about in the last podcast I did. And it was this idea that there's no evidence that TMAO is directly causing cardiovascular disease. Could TMAO just be a marker of insulin resistance? In that podcast, I talked about an enzyme called FMO3, which is used to convert TMA to TMAO in the liver. And wouldn't you know it, hat tip to Nathan, 
that this enzyme is under the control of insulin. And so what you see is that in people with type 2 diabetes, in people with insulin resistance, they're going to have more FMO3. They're going to make more TMAO out of TMA. So our, our position, our hypothesis in the last podcast was that TMAO being elevated was probably just an indication of insulin resistance. And so what do you think about this paper we just read, Tommy? Yeah, I think it actually completely supports that idea. So they looked at uh, genetic variation and in metabolism of things like betaine, choline, um, which are all, <clears throat> all you know, linked uh, into the production of, of TMAO. And they basically found that TMA, TMAO itself had no direct um, causative role, um, but that the op- opposite was true. So in people who had type 2 diabetes, you know, they had higher TMAO levels, and that would directly go with that, with that hypothesis of, um, of it being under the control of insulin. It's just a marker of insulin resistance. We know that type 2 diabetes is one of the biggest risk factors for heart disease. Um, and for various, for various and varied, very interesting reasons, uh, but it exactly points to that, um, to that idea that uh, people who have uh, who have type 2 diabetes or some kind of insulin resistance uh, or metabolic disease, they are going to have higher circulating levels of TMAO, but that doesn't mean that the TMAO itself is is causing the injury. It's just the fact that it's associated with something that does increase the risk of heart disease. And this is the idea of reverse causality, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's so interesting because so many people will associate choline and carnitine in the diet with production of TMAO in the human body. And the next logical conclusion is that we should be limiting our, cons- our consumption of choline and carnitine, which is a little bit ridiculous to probably both Tommy and myself, because choline is a precursor for so many important things in the mm-hmm. human body. And if you limit your choline too much, you can assuredly, you know... Give yourself fatty liver. Exactly. Non-alcoholic fatty liver yeah. disease. And, you know, choline supplementation or choline-rich foods, eggs, liver, grass-fed muscle meat, you know, those could potentially improve a fatty liver condition. And carnitine in meat, we know, is valuable for dealing with advanced glycation end products. And, you know, why don't you talk a little bit about TMAO sources in fish? So yeah, so this this is one of the interesting, um, you know, it's always been like an asterisk against people who talk about, say, carnitine in the diet from red meat and TMAO and risk of uh, heart disease, which is that if you look at postprandial again, so after a meal, <clears throat> levels of TMAO, the foods that stimulate the highest levels of TMAO are uh, seafood. Um, and if you look at any study, any 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 type of study you choose to pick, obviously most of it's going to be epidemiological, but there are also some intervention studies. Um, seafood is associated with a reduced risk of cardiovascular disease. So the you know the all the different evidence that exists it will either tell you that TMAO you you can't directly connect it or that it's just you know it's an associational biomarker of a diseased state and not that the food that you're eating causing raised TMAO is associated with increased heart disease. So I think that at this point we can put the TMAO thing to bed <laughs> and I mean there's been a number of articles that have been published saying TMAO is a red herring, you know, kind of this tongue in cheek pun regarding the fact that fish have these preformed levels of TMAO. So I'm going to send this podcast to Dr. Stephen Gundry and he can <laughs> He can stop talking about TMAO or concerns about TMAO in his body because uh, he's probably not insulin resistant. Or, you know, it just gives it the context of the whole discussion. Now, another thing that's really interesting to me around um, the the gut flora is 
the way that people suggest that eating plant foods might be necessary for a healthy microbiome. Mm. Can we talk about, I'd just be curious to get your perspective on this and what we know or what, what, you know, what your perspective is about the need for plant foods for a healthy microbiome or your, your sense of the research around alpha diversity. And let's talk about this because this is something that I'm really curious about, right? Everybody says the more plant foods you eat, the better your gut microbiome will be. And Maybe that's true in some cases, and we've had some conversations about how to get to a healthy gut. The, the answer is that anybody who tells you that they know the answer is probably lying to you. And the, the real reason for that is, is that we don't have, have well-studied populations of the people who eat like you do. Like the, that research does, doesn't exist. Um, we don't know how healthy your gut is uh, or the hundreds or thousands of other people eating carnivore diets. So we, we can't say that it's unhealthy. Um, what we can look at, I think, is we can look at um, you know, physical health, uh, biomarkers, look at blood tests and things like that and get some idea. Um, diversity of the gut microbiota is certainly thought to be a good thing. Um, however, you know, we have a mutual friend who we know he has a high biodiversity um, in his gut, but all of it is those bad actors that we talked about earlier. So you can have you know, a very diverse... A set of criminals um, that you, that you uh, have hanging out in your gut. So diversity itself doesn't necessarily tell you anything. Um, however, there are people saying that, uh, say, eating a, a ketogenic or, or carnivore diet will decrease diversity. That you know, the, the, the studies that, that exist on that, I think, uh, do disprove that. Uh, there's one study that I'm thinking of in, in patients with multiple sclerosis. They went on a, on a ketogenic diet. Their diversity decreased, and then it increased again as they sort of shifted over to a, to a, to a new uh, microbiota, which is exactly what you'd expect. So you know, is, uh, you know, when you look at population studies, yes, diversity is generally associated with health. Um, there is one study that, suggest, that I think in Graves' disease showed that those with Graves' disease had a, a, a higher diversity than those who didn't, Graves' disease being a thyroid disease. So it's not the, the truth in, in all cases. Um, but I think that that's probably due to the fact that um, the modern Western diet just fosters a low diversity in the gut microbiota. There's, there's only a certain number of things that can exist in, you know, when, when you're that poorly fed. Um, and, and so then, again, when that makes up the majority of the people you study, then diversity seems to be a good thing because the people who have more diversity in that setting are the people who listen to uh, the advice uh, to eat uh, more vegetables and, and nuts and seeds and things like, you know, whole foods. And then you get more diversity because you have a, a wider range of things for your bugs to eat. And so, again, under those conditions, diversity generally looks like a good thing. Whether that then translates to people who are eating these um, more novel diets, and I mean again novel in terms of you know what people have seen recently, um, I, I just don't think we have the data to translate it. And you mentioned something that I think people will be very interested in. People always ask me what labs should I have drawn. Uh-huh. So I agree with you, and and I'll there's a study here that I'll point people to. It's the article is titled "The Ketogenic Diet Influences Taxonomic and Functional Composition of the Gut Microbiota in Children with Severe Epilepsy." And even in the the abstract, they will note that uh, the ketogenic diet in these children with epilepsy did not affect alpha diversity. So Mm -hmm. I think that, as Tommy is suggesting, 
In some contexts, alpha diversity may be uh, a valuable measure, but it's probably not the end-all and be-all. And some of the research, I mean, a significant amount of the research actually suggests that ketogenic and presumably carnivore diets don't actually affect alpha diversity in a negative way. Whether or not that's the, the real indice, index of health is really questionable. But what could people look at on a carnivore diet or any diet? What would be good biomarkers of health this, I think, people will really be interested in because this is a fascinating conversation. Yeah, and I think that the the basic blood tests that you can get for literally a handful of dollars, dozens of dollars, is probably where um, everybody and anybody should start. Um, so a comprehensive metabolic panel, you can get a huge amount out of um, a CBC with differential, you know, looking at your red blood cells. Uh, blood glucose, um, and again, that could either be on a formal test or just like blood sugar over the day after after meals is incredibly tightly linked to uh, disease risk and mortality. Um, you can get uh, a fair amount from just like very basic lipids, and it's probably not you know it's a lot more complicated than than most people w- would tell you. Um, and then you know uh, some things like iron studies. Um, if you do have some severe issues, maybe you start looking at. Um, heavy metals and some of the other minerals and things. But just looking at the really basic stuff, there's a huge amount that you can get out of it. So like elevated GGT, um, which you would get on a, on a liver panel or a metabolic panel, uh, that can tell you a lot about whether you have adequate glutathione. Um, looking at your red blood cells can tell you about a lot of, can tell you about inflammation, can tell you about a lot of different nutrients. Um, so all of those things you can extract as long as you know what you're looking for. So CBC with diff, yeah, comprehensive metabolic panel, yeah. which will have liver function, AST, ALT, and GGT. Yeah. Iron panel, so yeah. probably ferritin. If you just say iron panel to the lab, they should get all that stuff with you. Yeah. Make sure you get a ferritin, transferrin, set, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Probably basic inflammatory markers, HSCRP, yeah. maybe a basic fasting insulin. Yeah. You'll get a glucose. You'll get a fasting glucose and a CMP, and if people want to add an A1C, anything you would add to that is like a basic index of health. Yeah, if you and if you just started there, I think there's a huge amount that you that you can tell about Pretty your good. health. And I, 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 it's very rare now that I'd go beyond that until I like know somebody really well. I've looked at those labs. Um, you know, how to think about the things that might be going on. Uh, and then, yeah, you can get into the hormones and all that kind of stuff. And that's definitely important. Uh, but, you know, until you've really looked um, looked at those, uh, those basics, I wouldn't order anymore. And I think if people want to start, that's a good place to start. Mm. Uh, they might, I, I might add a thyroid panel in there with a T3, a T4, a TSH, free T3, and maybe antibodies. But, I mean, that panel is not incredibly expensive and give you a pretty darn good sense of what you want to do. So... This one, I mean, every time you guys ask me on Instagram now and be like, go listen to this podcast with Tommy Wood. I talked about basic labs. Do you want to talk about RDW a little yeah. bit or is this top secret? Because no, you, no. you told me about this last, last week and it really blew my mind. And even since then, I've been looking at RDW on all my clients and it's so interesting. So let's talk about RDW. Yeah, RDW or red cell distribution width is, is basically a measure of how variable your red blood cells are in size. And it's incredibly um, tightly linked to all-cause mortality. So there's uh, uh, one small study uh, that, that looked at RDW, and basically for each percent that your RDW goes above about 12.5, you increase your uh, risk of all-cause mortality by by one time. So like th- so that it's like doubled at 13.5 and then tripled at 14.5. And it just keeps on going up and up and up. Um, and RDW, uh, you know, high variability in your red blood cells is associated with um, so deficiencies in micronutrients, um, inflammation, certain autoimmune conditions. 
And you can, you know, that's probably in, in terms of, and it kind of tells you uh, various things. So, so where, so is your body, has your body been able to consistently make red blood cells of the same size? Um, is your body making lots of new red blood cells so reticular sites are larger? Um, and it may be doing that because it's working really hard because you're losing blood somewhere. You know, and, you know, or you have some inflammatory process that's eliminating uh, or destroying your red blood cells. Uh, so there's a huge amount that, that can come out of that. That's, that's probably why the RDW is, is so predictive. It's one of the best predictors of, of long-term health. And you'll get an RDW on a CBC. So yeah. on a complete blood count with a diff, you'll get an RDW. And people can run to their blood work now and look at it. I'll tell you, mine was like 13.1. So I thought, oh shit, I'm not where I want to be. And you know, Tommy and I had a conversation about metals. I, we're going to talk a little about heavy metals in this. And I'm curious to see because I just had blood work done earlier this week and my my RDW, I want to get it down to about 12.5, like Tommy was saying. But I'm looking at my clients, and I saw one that was 14.5. I saw that was 15.1 uh, yeah. this week. Somebody had a 13.1. I thought, okay, you're doing pretty good. And maybe somebody had one in the 12s. I was like, okay, it was great. But it's so interesting. I'd never thought of that. And I don't think I was never taught about that in medical school. That was no. so cool. So if there are physicians listening to this, you can check out the RDW. And if people are listening to this as patients and you know people that are uh, and interested in their own health, they can go to their CBC and kind of look at the RDW. And as Tommy suggested, think about micronutrients, think about metals, think about toxins, think about underlying inflammation if that red blood cell distribution width is elevated above where you want it to be. You talked about GGT, mm. gamma glutamyl transferase is another one of these kind of sneaky labs that's super valuable. So there's, the, the, a, there's a lot there. Yeah, and the important thing about these is that uh, the the normal reference range doesn't tell you anything. Exactly. So the nor the the normal range for uh, RDW goes up to at least fifteen, I think fourteen point five to fifteen maybe. And so once you're at the top of that, you're you're still uh, you know you know it's associated with with dramatically elevated risk of a, of a number of diseases. So and it's worth remembering that the normal range is just designed to capture ninety five percent of the population. Um, and at, at, at most recent count. Um, more than 80% of the population in the US have some kind of metabolic disease um, or on the way to the frank metabolic disease. So you're basically comparing yourself to other sick people or to sick people. Um, and that's not going to tell you anything about your health if you want to be you know, as healthy as you can be. So those normal ranges in general, uh, we just sort of like throw them out because they, they don't really tell you anything other than how you fare compared to all the average people around you. You need a much more granular look. Yeah. Talk a little about AST and ALT. These are two liver <clears throat> enzymes on the comprehensive metabolic panel. Yeah, so we've uh, part of the the work that I've done with with people at Nourish Balance Thrive um, and a guy called Brian Walsh, Dr. Brian Walsh, who's this amazing um, naturopathic doctor, who's one of the best, if not the best, person at interpreting uh, blood, blood tests and a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about now. I've learned from him. Um, we built something called the blood calculator, which is that you can basically put in the test that we've talked about. And there's two things. One, there's optimal reference ranges. Uh, so that tell you about disease risk and our sort of North star is all cause mortality because, you know, that's the one thing that we know is easy to diagnose whether you're dead or not um, and how quickly that happens. Um, and so looking at how uh, changes in certain markers would increase or decrease your risk of all-cause mortality. So we've set like optimal reference ranges which are associated with the lowest uh, risk of all-cause mortality. So that's one part of it. And the, then the other part of it is building machine le learning algorithms to either predict issues, so things like heavy metal toxicity, which we are based on a, a large database of um, uh, blood tests that we have um, and then some various other things so so we built something um, called we have a predicted age calculation so what does how old do your blood tests look you know if, if if you were to put in your blood tests 
and the algorithm has you know, like a hundred thousand blood tests on the back like how old do you look compared to other people um and what's really interesting and then, and then we also have a mortality prediction like people dying or not and when compared to how their blood tests look and, and it's interesting because uh, most people will say that having low alt and ast is better um and then it, it really just depends on the population so if you look at the published literature um in caucasians say uh that doesn't really hold true actually there's very little association between alt and ast and say disease outcomes if you are korean or of some you know southeast asian descent then it's very tightly linked yes you want to keep your liver enzymes down uh, but when you look at predicting mortality from these blood tests using um data that supposedly uh, sort of reflects the general u.s population then actually um an alt that's actually at the higher end or maybe just above the normal reference range is associated with reduced mortality, but you do want your AST to be to be low. So when somebody says you want your ALT and AST to both be low, the data doesn't really bear that out. So there's a divergence there. Yeah. At least according to the data that you're looking at in terms of all-cause mortality or mortality, the ALT a little higher than the AST might be ideal. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't necessarily want them all to be very low unless you're of the Southeast Asian. So there's so much nuance here. It's so fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about hormones because mm -hmm. I get questions about that all the time. Specifically, before the podcast, we struck gold a little bit talking about sex hormone binding globulin and testosterone from urinary markers of test, like the Dutch test. So let's talk about these a little bit because this is fascinating. One of the things I was mentioning to you is that in some of the people I work with, males, we're talking about now because we're talking generally about, but it could be the same for females, but let's talk about males for the time being. I've seen higher than normal sex hormone binding globulin. And um, I was wondering, and so let's talk, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, generally people worry about having high sex. So there's this, there's this whole fascination and um, sort of hyper-focus on testosterone in men. And I, I think it is important uh, for, for certain reasons, uh, but um, people want, they, you know, they think they want to have their total testosterone as high as possible, and they want to have their sex hormone binding globulin as low as possible, because then they have loads of free, they have a high free androgen index or high free testosterone, because that's just going to make them super manly and super horny and super strong. Um, What's really interesting is that uh, in the studies that have actually looked at this, sex hormone binding globulin basically increases linearly with insulin sensitivity. So the people that I uh, we worked with at uh, NBT and some of the other athletes that I work with now, these are generally have an endurance component to their sport, um, and they are all they're usually fairly lean or very lean, and they have, they're very insulin sensitive, and their SB, SHBGs are normally like 70 to 90, which is above the normal range. And again, the normal range is low because people are sick. Um, and the best way to decrease your sex hormone binding globulin is to get either obesity or type 2 diabetes. And that's the best way to, to um, reliably do it. So if, if that's the way you want to approach it, that's probably not going not to make much sense because your testosterone is going to come down um, as you get those diseases as well. So it's interesting to think about the fact that um, free testosterone isn't the only bioactive. Like you're normally told that the only testosterone that's doing the job of testosterone is that which is free, and that's not necessarily true. There's there's some studies which show that bound testosterone has an effect. It can be internalized by the cell, but equally it could be released right at the at the point of the cell uh, from the either from sex hormone binding globulin or from albumin or whatever protein is binding it, and, and have an effect. So. 
you know, when you're looking at this stuff, uh, just the total testosterone is probably enough. And actually, a, a higher sex hormone binding globulin is usually associated with better things. And you might see higher SHBG um, in, in older populations. You know, those who live longer often have higher SHBG. So it's never, you know, after reading some of that stuff, like SHBG has never really worried me, unless it's low, because then this is probably somebody who has insulin resistance or metabolic disease. Exactly. And if you look at the differential diagnosis of a high SHBG, it's it's a variety of things that none of the clients I have have. Yeah. You know, hyperthyroidism usually, things like this that cause and high. Do you, and do you know why that is? Is because you're really insulin sensitive when you're hyperthyroid. Exactly, yeah. right? So it, <laughs> it's a strange thing and I'm always trying to piece it out. So that was interesting for me to kind of put those two pieces together. And I think what Tommy said there about the, the total testosterone being a valuable measure is, is great for people to look at. Now, if people have a low total testosterone, there is such thing as hypogonadism. Mm. And, you know, I can do another podcast in the future where I talk about testosterone, but it's possible to have a testosterone that's too low for a variety of reasons. If people have questions about that, they should look at free and total. But again, as Tommy is suggesting, don't base everything on the free. If the, if the, if the, if the SHBG is slightly high, Maybe you're just very insulin sensitive. Lots of carnivores or ketogenic people are. If the total is on the low end, then you have to start looking at like what is going on there. Take a clinical history. Are there sexual dysfunction symptoms going on? Mm -hmm. And think about things like sleep. Look at LH and FSH and the precursors. And in that case, and one of the things that you mentioned was that urinary testosterone may not be the best thing. Yeah. So there's uh, there are some tests that look at uh, sex hormones in the urine and they haven't really been well validated. Uh, I think there, there's a paper that just came out looking at urinary uh, estrogen or estrogen. And <laughs> I was going to tell them. <laughs> and, and progesterone over the menstrual cycle. And they do seem to correlate well with serum. But testosterone doesn't. And that's because there is a very common or very there are very common polymorphisms that affect how you metabolize testosterone that may mean that they, it doesn't end up in the urine. So if you do these tests, so the Dutch test is, is, is probably the one that's best known, um, you, and we, we talked about uh, one of your clients, right? They have, um, I think their total testosterone is close to 700 and they had pretty much no testosterone in their urine. And so my guess is that they would have one of those polymorphisms. And you can see that on, um, on those tests by looking at the balance of the different, um, the different metabolites. Uh, but in reality, uh, particularly if you're looking at testosterone, um, and also if, if you are um, if you're doing things like bioidentical hormone replacement in in women, um, either because you've uh, completely suppressed production because you have a, a long history of anorexia or um, endurance exercise, female athlete triad, or women who are after menopause, you're going to want to track that stuff in serum anyway. So when it comes to sex hormones, I've kind of stopped using the urine and I think the serum is still the way to go. But you did mention that the, um, I guess the salivary test for the cortisol awakening yeah. response, that's a valuable one. So in terms of hormones, we were saying that when people are going to look at their hormones, you might just focus on the sex hormones in the blood. Mm. But if you were going to do the cortisol testing, that perhaps salivary or urinary, although the, the cortisol awakening response is a salivary test, I believe. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And that's that's probably the, the best published test of cortisol in association with you know stress and uh, different disease outcomes. But the urinary cortisol is useful to tell you about general circadian rhythms, whether you know they're usually blunted uh, for a number of reasons. Um, so that that definitely can that definitely can be useful. So both both urine and uh, saliva could be useful for for cortisol. So that that I think will help people think about hormones in another way. And I can do a whole podcast 
on hormones and we're just really breaking it down for you guys. So hopefully you can, you're scribbling away somewhere <laughs> and going to talk to your doctor about all these things and I hope it's helpful. See, I told you, Tommy's just a freaking repository of amazing stuff. Let's, should we go to, you want to go to Loma Linda? Let's talk about the blue zones. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, we're not going to go to Loma Linda. I, I, I really enjoy the blue zones, um, as, as a concept. Um, I, hail from from a country that that nearly made it onto the list of blue zones but didn't quite which is iceland they're like the one below um and there's there's a lot of talk about all the things that they do in the blue zones um that cause you know so blue zones are associated with people who they have the highest rate of centenarians and super centenarians which is people to live who live to be 100 or 100 or more than 100 or more than 110 and there are definitely a lot of genetic things that are going on in those places um and but people, what people get really focused on is the diet. Is that you know they eat a lot of legumes, they eat low fat, they don't eat much meat, and that's variably true from blue zone to blue zone. Within um, the seven blue zones within, that Dan Butner calls yeah, the blue zones, right? Yeah. So so one of uh, one of them being uh, so I mean there's the there's uh, Loma Linda, there's the Okinawans, uh, there's the Nicoya Palinsa in Costa Rica, there's uh, Nicosia in Greece. Um, there's the Sicilians. Uh, those are like the main ones that people talk about. And, you know, so say the Okinawans probably have quite a high meat intake, particularly from pork, at least historically. But there are some where it's a more vegetarian, low-fat type dietary picture. Um, and so that's what gets focused on. And, um, you know, it's it's important to to an extent, which is that they eat, like, real food from the local environment, right? Like, that, and then that's probably where I'd stop worrying about it, and that that is really important. I do believe in that, and but what I do think I do think they tell us is the importance of all the other things, like movement and sleep, and having some kind of stress medication strategy and community and and things like that. So, you know, and then this is the reason why um, why other problems in nutritional epidemiology exist, which is that generally people who are healthier do all of those things, and then, you know, the diet is almost a, a, a side product, um, and you can't even measure how people eat anyway if you ask them a questionnaire. So the, the blue zones are important, but not because of the dietary stuff, because of all the other stuff. And they are interesting from a genetic perspective. They yeah. seem to have this clustering of these longevity genes, whether it's FOXO3 or sirtuins or other... APOC3 is a big one. Polymorphisms that yeah. have to do with insulin sensitivity and regulation of inflammation. And there's plenty of data suggesting that those tend to cluster in those areas. Mm. There's data about New England, sort of blue zones, and the Okinawans. I do think it's kind of arbitrary, and it would be interesting to have a conversation with him. Why did you pick these? Because Iceland seems like a great example, and it would have completely changed the mold. I saw an article recently... It might have been in 2018. There were 50 living centenarians in Iceland with a population of, of something. Three, like just over 300,000. Right, the size of Rhode Island. Yeah. Right? So there was like, I think that they were saying it was the highest concentration of centenarians in the world. And you would know better than anyone, what do people eat in Iceland? I mean, <laughs> I know what, I, I have an idea of what they think they eat, but tell me, what do, what do they eat in Iceland? Yeah, so, so I still have two living grandparents in Iceland, and I can tell you what they eat, and it's a lot of uh, fatty meat, fatty fish, particularly lamb. Uh, they do eat um, uh, a fair number of potatoes, which are obviously a, a, a recent um, addition to their diets. Um, but most of, most of it is – most of their – and dairy is a big thing, at least for the last uh, – you know, a few centuries. So most of their calories are coming from animal, uh, animal foods and animal products. 
And I don't know, maybe I need to speak to Dan Butner and ask what what made his decision. But if you're trying to find a dietary pattern associated with longevity, then Iceland doesn't fit the mold that you could make out of some of those other countries. Doesn't sound like they have a lot of polyphenols in their diet. <laughs> Where are their polyphenols, well, they they, um, they, uh, they may have a few that comes through the lamb fat. There we go. Yeah, they, there we because go. What, what I always find really... And, we, we probably shouldn't dig too much into this. We'll, we'll spend the rest of the podcast talking about it. But what I find really interesting about people talking um, about animal products and the environment is the fact that, so I, you know, I, half of my family comes from Iceland. It's basically um, uh, a lava field covered in moss. You can't grow anything there, but do you know what you can do? You can get sheep to turn moss, which you can't eat, into incredibly nutritious and delicious food, and it costs nothing to the environment. In fact, it's beneficial to the environment. So, in you know, in in uh, environments like that, uh, where people have thrived, and you know, the reason they've thrived is because you know they they get animals to turn inedible uh, vegetation into incredibly nutritious food. They're magical. Yeah. That's the real magic. <laughs> I, I, the cows do the same thing. They turn grass, which humans cannot eat because of the amount of silica in the grass, into ribeye steaks and liver. And that's amazing. Yeah. And bone marrow. That's, that's the most magical thing I've heard of in a long time. That's fantastic. So that's incredible. They yeah. turn moss into reindeer. Yeah. Like how, how, I don't know how you, could, how you could argue with that. And anybody who thinks that you know, my grandparents, who are uh, both in their mid to late 80s, and I have... Um, uh, great grandmothers on both sides who lived uh, into their late 90s um if you want to turn around and tell them that they should be eating almonds and avocados grown, broccoli yeah broccoli grown in california like, it doesn't make any sense on any level it so. doesn't make any sense <laughs> and you know my greatest regret in the last month is being on the podcast with Stephen gundry and not talking to him about this awesome study looking at the sperm quality in loma linda <laughs> i just love this <laughs> I've talked about it on maybe only a few podcasts, but if people just Google Loma Linda sperm quality, I'll pull up the actual study and give you guys the real reference. What you will imagine is quite striking with regard to this is that the the sperm quality in Loma Linda is very bad. And so I thought this was so interesting. The name of the study is Food Intake and Sperm Characteristics in a Blue Zone, a Loma, a Loma Linda Study. Basically, The conclusion says the study showed that the vegetables-based food intake decreased sperm quality. In particular, a reduction in sperm quality in male factor patients would be clinically significant and would require review. So so you know that you know what I'm going to say. This so I, I've read this study, and I, I do think it's 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 very interesting. But there are only five vegetarian Loma Lindas who showed up for this study, right? And the, the other groups where people were omnivores were much larger. This is true. So it's really so like you know we uh, five vegans. Yeah, five vegans showed up, and maybe that's because there's only five vegans left in Loma Linda. I don't <laughs> they know. all moved out. They haven't they haven't been able to reproduce. And there were 26. Yeah, exactly. There were 26 <laughs> uh, lifelong lacto ovo vegetarians and five vegans. Yeah. So it, it's just. It's interesting, but you know, I I, I, spend, study. I spend a lot of time talking to people about how to actually understand and do statistics, and it's just it's interesting. But ca- you know, you would need you need more vegans to show up and and uh, donate some you know, a, a sample to to have a look. They couldn't. It's, <laughs> <laughs> this is the blue ball study, not the blue zone study. <laughs> so, the, and then I'll just read the next sentence, just you know, with the caveat from Doctor Wood. Furthermore, inadequate sperm hyperactivation in vegans suggested compromised membrane calcium selective channels. Inadequate sperm hyperactivation in vegans, people. All right, just saying. All right, enough about that. I just had to put that one in there, and I'll send this podcast to my friend, Dr. Gundry, and we'll probably talk about it, or maybe he'll never talk to me again. But 
Okay, so that's the blue zones because people always ask me about that. That's my perspective as well. These are representations of clusters of genes. They really don't tell us about food patterns. And so the next time your doctor or your friend says, what about the blue zones? They eat all these things. Just refer them back to this and have them think about Iceland. And then even the Nicoya region of Costa Rica has a male longevity and they eat a ton of meat there. So I don't know. The whole thing is a little bit strange to me in general. Now, you mentioned dairy. You mentioned that your grandparents and great-grandparents were drinking dairy in Iceland. Let's talk a little bit about dairy because you and I have talked a little bit about A1 versus A2 dairy and whether there's any real data here. But it's, it's an interesting concept. And I would suspect, do you know if the cows in Iceland are A2? A2. Okay, let's yeah. talk about that. So the, the A1 versus A2 is, is basically uh, the type of casein protein, which is the main protein in milk. It's like 80% of the protein. Um, and it's, it's, it's just that at some point in the evolution of cows, there was a, a switch. So the A2 is actually the evolutionarily... Um, older uh, casein but then at some point there was an a1 switch and and people have focused on uh, a1 producing cows because they tend to make more milk so they're economically more beneficial uh traditionally at least in the scandinavian countries um where you know they they consume a lot of dairy and dairy is is generally seen to be associated with with uh, health benefits in in the studies that have been done you know they tend to have more of the a2 producing cows um and the way that these um uh, proteins are broken down. Uh, the the A1 casein uh, produces um, more of these what they call beta casomorphins, which can have um, modulating effects on uh, the immune system. They can also affect um, you know opioid receptors that might like mess with like pain reception and things like that. And there, and there is there are some studies in people who are sensitive to casein um, that if you switch A1 for A2 um, and you look at say stool quality. Um, and and some uh, some some other factors that there's definitely an improvement. And there's a guy whose name I can't remember, but he's in New Zealand who's done a huge amount of this of this uh, research. And so in um, you know when you're thinking about some of the negative effects of of casein and milk, a lot of it seems to be attributable to the A1 type casein. Of course, there are other things in milk that people might be sensitive to, might have issues with, um, but that in general uh, the A2 casein form. And and there are now you know now it's become a a, a thing, right? Is somebody's figured this out and is commercializing it. So you can now buy A2 milk um, in the grocery store in the US because because people are, are assigned to focus on that. But you know, is, is that a bad thing? I don't know. There's a, a, a the Whole Foods near me. They sell uh, grass fed, um, unpasteurized A2 milk. I'm like, well, you know, that's probably a pretty good thing. I'm I'm pretty happy about that. So um, that's you know, when people are sensitive to issues with dairy, that's that may be one of the main. Uh, main things causing it. And uh, it's my understanding that goat's milk is a, all A2 and that yeah. any milk other than a cow is all A2. So yeah. if people are sensitive to dairy, they can go outside of you know cows Absolutely. and do goat's milk or other milks. Maybe goat's milk, sheep's milk. Camel's milk or something, yeah. yeah. That's, that's a sexy thing at the moment, camel's milk. I know, somebody sent me something about that on Instagram. I need yeah. to take a look. Um, personally, I've tried goat's milk. I, maybe I would go back to goat's milk in the future. Who knows? But I've generally on my social media platforms, I've dissuaded people or discouraged them from doing dairy. I think most of what people are going to get is going to be A1. What I've seen clinically for people is that that the A1 milk uh, can affect satiety, generally leads to weight loss, and can trigger immunologic symptoms. There's some great research about this. I'll just mention one study if people want to go look it up. Effects of milk containing only A2 beta casein versus milk containing both A1 and A2 beta casein proteins 
on GI physiology, symptoms of discomfort, and cognitive behavior of people with self-reported intolerance to traditional cow's milk. It's a study from uh, China, or it's uh, Chinese uh, participants in the study, and the conclusion is that consumption of milk containing A1 beta casein was associated with increased GI inflammation, worsening PD3 symptoms, and the PD3 symptoms are uh, post-daily digestive discomfort symptoms, delayed transit, decreased cognitive processing speed and accuracy. So they're saying that the A1 milk in this small study gave, gave the people all these symptoms. There's also studies with A1 milk in diabetes. There are hypotheses involving A1 milk in atherosclerosis. There's a lot out there. So if people are sensitive to dairy, generally what I would personally recommend, I can't speak for Tommy, is if people are going to try a carnivore diet, I would avoid dairy completely mm. and then reintroduce. And if you're going to reintroduce I would only reintroduce an A2 milk. And that could be goat's milk, could be sheep's milk, could be camel's milk, or it could be A2 cow's milk at your local Whole Foods. But that is a really interesting concept. So let's talk a little bit about dry fasting. Because <laughs> you and I had a little, we had a little text session about this the other day. Somebody posted about dry fasting on Instagram, and it seems to be all the rage. And, you know, I don't want to invalidate people who are finding benefits from dry fasting. I just wanted to present a little bit of what Tommy and I were aware of in terms of the science. I think if people are fasting, that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing to fast. I think time-restricted eating has uh, value. And I think that if people are doing dry fasting in a safe way, that's fine. I just wanted to talk a little about the science behind it. So Tommy, you'd mentioned to me that when people metabolize a pound of fat, Mm -hmm. like a pound of fat, there was like a liter of water produced. Yeah, so no, it's for a kilo of fat is a, a is kilo. A, of so fat. it's about the equivalent weight of water is produced for every for every, for for the same amount of fat that you that you metabolize, and that's what we call the the water of metabolism. So this dry fasting thing, which says you can produce enough water from the burning of fat, yeah, that's probably technically true. And the the reason why this makes sense is because you're breathing in oxygen, which then becomes part of that water that you breathe out, right? Because you need to add weight to that on top of the stuff that you burn or else the, like the mass doesn't make sense, sense in your head. Um, and so, but, but the issue with that, particularly for prolonged periods of time, is that you're going to need more water than you're producing from burning that fat. And, you know, when you start, you, you know, depending on how uh, fat you are, um, you know, so the, the fatter you are, the more fat you burn when you fast relative to lean tissue. If you're leaner, you're going to be burning more muscle tissue um, and also where you are in that fast. And eventually, uh, you know, most people are going to need more water than they're producing um, from the fat that they're burning. So you can make some, absolutely. But in in general, like that's it's particularly for prolonged fast, you know, the, 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 the maths, the math isn't going <laughs> to work out. <laughs> the plural, the maths. The, yeah, the maths. <laughs> the maths won't work out. And I mean, are you aware of any scientific studies that would suggest that there's a downside to drinking water while you're fasting or that there's a that you're going to burn more fat by dry fasting? No. Uh, um, I'm certain that study hasn't been done. Like, and we, you know, I think you were saying that some people say that dry fasting stimulates more autophagy. Like, we don't even know how to measure autophagy in humans. You can do uh, muscle biopsies and measure, uh, measure certain proteins associated with the initiation of the autophagosome, they call it, when, when your cells are starting to, to initiate autophagy. Uh, but there's no, like, systemic blood test that you can do that says you're getting more autophagy. And do you even know which cells you want autophagy in? Like, do you want autophagy in your brain? You know, maybe not. Um, so we have no way of measuring that. Um, so to say, and this, the, the comparison of dry versus wet 
or water fasting. Um, you know, that hasn't been done, certainly hasn't been done in humans. If you did it in small animals like mice, you'd kill them pretty quickly. Um, so as far as I know, there's definitely no evidence to support that. It's quite an interesting thing. And I think what Tommy is saying there is a very important point that a lot of people want to talk about autophagy, like they know how to measure it or that they know there's autophagy going on. And I think this is a little bit of an extrapolation at this point mm. in terms of the science. I don't think we really know how to measure autophagy. No. There are some suggestions that perhaps during a fast, uric acid is a measure, but it's all speculative at this point. And without doing a muscle biopsy, like Tommy's saying, you don't know. And there are, I, you know, it really bugs me when people are trying to sell supplements that that are going to try and increase autophagy. We just don't know where we want autophagy, where we don't. And I think let your body do what it wants to do. Let the natural course happen with fasting. You'll do autophagy sometimes. Time-restricted feeding probably has some measure of autophagy if you have a, a, a window where you're not eating. To me, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tommy, to me it seems like if you create a window during the day where you're not eating, that's probably a good thing. Yeah. And that in a fast of you know, 16 or 24 hours, you're probably going to get some level of autophagy yeah. and that's probably a good thing. Yeah. And that, at this point, that's, that's all that we can say. Exactly. Yeah. And I wonder if it would be interesting to look at studies to see if autophagy increases beyond 24 hours or maybe autophagy peaks at 48 and then is flat line in terms of how much happens, but we don't have a good way to measure this. Yeah. So I think that if you sort of extrapolate based on the metabolism in mice and the speed of that versus the metabolism in humans and what increases autophagy in the tissues of, of mice, then probably to get like maximal or create maximal autophagy, you're probably looking at fasting for like three days, but again, you know, or longer. But again, this is all extrapolated from animal research. And we don't really know, you know, unless anybody wants to fast and then have donate all their body tissues to science, which, you know, we'd be very grateful for, um, that, you know, we, we just haven't got great measures of that yet. And so, I, yeah, it just, it irks me a little bit when people are trying to suggest, just kind of like the microbiome, that they've got it all figured out and they know exactly what the diversity should be and they know exactly what organisms should be there. With autophagy, they're saying, oh, we know exactly this and you should definitely do this and then you'll get maximum autophagy. I think that it's all just speculative at this yeah, point. Absolutely. And the clear thing to me is that we should not be eating around the clock. We should probably not be eating six to seven meals a day for 20 hours of the day if we want to have some sort of cellular house cleaning. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the with as, as you decrease the number of meals, so probably like two to three meals in terms of things like, um, you know, stimulating uh, muscle protein synthesis, which is definitely what you want if you want to maintain muscle tissue and maintain strength um, uh, and maintain insulin sensitivity, metabolic health. That's, you know, more is definitely worse and then you know in, in some scenarios less may even be worse actually unless you're doing a concerted period of fasting like one meal a day there are some studies that suggest maybe that's actually not the best approach and maybe a couple of meals a day is better so you know that you know never eating is going to be a bad thing and eating all the time is going to be a bad thing and at some point you know there's, there's probably some balance between the two what do you know about one meal a day because a lot of people in the carnivore and keto communities always ask me about that yeah. what about omad and i, I always think that I always thought maybe it's okay for me. I could never get enough calories yeah, to sustain yeah. me in a day without being uncomfortably full. What do you, what have you seen about one meal a day that yeah. may suggest there are downsides to they've, that? They've done some studies, I believe in type two diabetics, um, where they compare say three to one meal a day. And that meal is usually in the evening because that's what, what most people are going to do. And if you compare those two, you seem to uh, see worse uh, glucose regulation in, um, in the one meal a day. Now, of course, there's going to be all these caveats in terms of like, well, what were these guys eating? What else was going on? And yes, I mean, that's going to, we just don't know, right? That's, that's going to play a part. But in that kind of, um, 
in, in what we have so far. One meal a day, particularly later in the day, certainly seems to be worse than maybe um, maybe a couple of meals or shifting shifting your calories earlier in the day. The like the jury is still out on a lot of those details. Don't get me wrong, but overall, that that sort of one you know evening OMAD you know doesn't always seem to work out. And a lot of people who do OMAD do it in the evening yeah. out of convenience. They get up, they go to work, they come back, they eat a huge meal. Yeah. I think there's some really compelling data to suggest that eating late at night is probably not a good thing Absolutely. for insulin sensitivity, for sleep, which we know is connected with all kinds of things that are important. So that is an interesting thing. And what I've recommended to people, if they can do it, though it's a much more difficult thing to do logistically, is eating in the beginning part of the day and kind of skipping dinner. If I were going to do, if I were going to construct a day with an optimal time-restricted eating window, it would be maybe a six-hour or an eight-hour window that began, you know, eight o'clock and then ended at four or ended at three or ended yeah. at 2 p.m. That to me would be a better thing. And then you have this long fast in the evening and you're not eating late at night. So that's something for people to consider. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, again, it can be something that people tinker with. Maybe, um, maybe one meal in the evening is great and it sorts out all these other issues that they've been having and, and, and that's fine. But I certainly couldn't eat enough calories in one meal either. Um, and I've definitely seen improvements in people, both in terms of how they feel and in terms of things like blood sugar regulation, if they shift their calories earlier in the day, like you said. Everybody needs a CGM. Yeah, exactly. And, and then that allows you to, to play with this. Oh, I love yeah. it. I think that the democratization of that kind of information would be so cool. And I've got some friends that are working on CGMs, making them more available. It's yeah. just, you know, how accurate they are. And I think that would be so cool. So people are not familiar with CGM. It's a continuous glucose monitor. And I was actually talking to a client today who has diabetes and that information and Earlier in the podcast, we used the word postprandial. That means after eating. So the postprandial glucose excursions, like you were talking about, are super important. Yeah. You called them the mages. Oh, yeah. This is, the, this is the, um, something, uh, a metric called the mean amplitude of glucose excursions. Um, and and you could you can definitely figure that out. Um, you could do that on on if you had a, a CGM, or you can also kind of roughly guesstimate it if you do your blood sugar like half an hour, one hour, two hours after a meal. But basically, if your blood sugar is spiking more than definitely more than fifty milligrams per deciliter, but maybe more than thirty milligrams per deciliter after a meal, that variability in blood sugar is much more tightly linked uh, tightly linked to things like cardiovascular disease. Um, than say your fasting blood sugar is so it's these massive swings and these big particularly these big peaks uh, that are occurring that are, that are t- tightly linked to um, atheroma development and people with atherosclerosis and or whether they actually have an event um, so like fasting blood sugar is definitely important but it's those swings and those those peaks after meals that are probably more important it would be so easy to see that with a cgm or a continuous glucose monitor if people are willing to stick their finger I think something like a keto mojo is a great tool. Yeah. You can do a, a fasting glucose in the morning. You can do a postprandial, which would show you that mean or median amplitude glucose excursion, like you said, 30 minutes or an hour after a meal, and look for that 30 to 50 milligram per deciliter swing and say, oh, that's too much. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's, uh, the, the Japanese have actually done most of the research on this. And, and going back to the 70s, looking at this and, and showing how tightly co- uh, related it is to, uh, say, arterial health, which is then going to you know, be the lead you down the road to, to, to heart disease. So that's um, you know, measuring uh, fasting and postprandial um, glucose, uh, glucose after meals, probably one of the best things that you can do um, in terms of your health. And, and um, Rob Wolf's book, Wired to Eat, came out a couple of years ago, and he had this thing he called 
the seven-day carb test, which is what you you know eat uh, 50 grams of uh, a certain type of carbohydrate that maybe you'd eat regularly in your diet, and just measure your blood sugar afterwards and see you know maybe this isn't the exact type of you know if you are eating uh, foods that contain carbohydrates, then you can you figure out you know which one of these are causing massive blood sugar spikes which of these aren't and then maybe focus on the ones that are causing less of an issue or just don't eat carbohydrates or just don't eat carbohydrates <laughs> that's an option too. maybe just eat maybe just eat animal foods yeah he'd so, probably tell you that now too i think he's close to full carnivore uh, he's he's that's awesome to hear he's gonna, <laughs> i think maybe he's gonna maybe he'll write a book about carnivore soon so i we we have covered so much cool stuff let's talk a little bit about the podcast that you and i did with rich roll and then oh, we'll yeah. wrap it up All just right. as like a summary here yeah. so Probably the week that this podcast gets released, the minimalists, everybody should go check out them. They are amazing. They have an incredible podcast. They are so high quality. Had both myself and Tommy and Rich Roll on, and that podcast will be released. And the goal with that podcast was to have a discussion between a carnivore and a vegan and an omnivore and just to kind of put stuff out there. We didn't want to have a debate. We felt like debates were not always as productive as they could be, but you know, both Tommy and I were on that podcast. And so we just wanted to talk about how we felt it went. And what was your sense of that whole thing? So I think the, the idea was, a, was a good one. And so I won. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it, it kind of depends on how you want to look at it. So the, the, I'm joking. the, the, the problem is that, I mean, of course you won, but the, the, <laughs> the, the, the problem is that most of the times when these conversations come up and let's say that the Joe Rogan experience is where you'll see a lot of them. Is it set up like a fight, right? He's an MMA guy. He wants people to duke it out. And the problem is that nobody learns anything, right? Both sides sound like they have the perfect argument and, the, and say that the other person's completely wrong. So then the, the, the listener is like, well, now I have literally no idea what's going on. And so um, uh, JFM wanted to create something that, that was more of a conversation. Like, why might these diets, these dietary opposites, uh, say vegan versus uh, no-satel carnivore, um, you know, why might, you know, when might they be beneficial? Could they be beneficial for different people? Why might people want to try them? What would you want to track when you were doing them? And I think all of that is really useful for people because they're all tools. Like, when people have come to work with me, there are probably 12 different diets on the range from what you do to what Rich does and everywhere in between that have worked for certain people. And I don't want to restrict myself to any one tool. Right? I want as many tools as I can possibly get. I think that's wise. Yeah. And so, so I think that was, re were, was really helpful. Um, it's going to take a long time for people to really have a useful conversation about the environmental impacts. Um, and, and some of those things that I, I think, you know, when... The uh, the vegan propaganda comes in comes to oh. play like the just the, the environmental data and the environmental information. It, I mean, it's just it's just completely misinterpreted, you know, with a certain goal in mind. So we we kind of touched on that at the end, and things got a little bit heated just before the podcast finished. Um, and and I think that you know that's going to be really important. And uh, I keep on mentioning Rob Wolf; he's writing a book about this, and and uh, with uh, uh, Diana Rogers, who's a who's a, a farmer and an RD, and she's talked a lot about. Uh, uh, how you know in that sort of how cows can save the planet if used your ruminants can save the planet if if, if used uh, correctly so so that's going to be interesting to see and I think that that conversation is so much more nuanced than than people think it is and uh, maybe we didn't quite touch on that enough but it's because it becomes a thorny subject very quickly and then you sort of you, you lose the room and the next week after this podcast comes out, I'm going to release a podcast that I did with Peter Ballersted, and we talked a lot about the environmental implications. But as Tommy is suggesting, there's a lot of nuance there. And there is, frankly, sadly, I believe, a lot of vegan propaganda around the environmental stuff. I think that the health implications are 
interesting conversations. And in that podcast with Tommy and Rich, we were able to talk a little bit about that. I think it's pretty clear and it would be very difficult to make an argument that animal foods were in any way inferior to plant foods in terms of nutrient bioavailability. Conversely, I think it's pretty clear that animal foods are quite nutritive. They Mm -hmm. provide an incredible source of highly bioavailable nutrients, which is really my message in general. I'm not about making everyone into a carnivore. I do think a carnivore diet could be incredibly beneficial for a lot of people, but I just want people to understand that plant foods are full of toxins and some people are more sensitive to them than others. And for some people, the elimination of plant foods could result in massive health improvements. Also, the inclusion of increasing amounts of animal foods, especially animal organs or uh, animal fatty tissues, can be incredibly healing for people in terms of nutrient density, or I should say nutrient content rather than actual density is the word. So yeah, I'm excited for that one to come out. You guys should look for that this week. I will talk about it a bunch. Anything else you wanted to talk about? We've covered so much, buddy. Yeah, no, I think that's that's probably, I think we, we ticked all the boxes we wanted to tick. That's probably yeah. enough uh, for most people's brains to take in one You episode. did talk about the Nourish Balance Thrive lab calculator. Where can people find that? Or the lab sort of interpreter? Yeah, so it's it's not technically associated with NBT in any way. It's oh. just some of the same people who are involved. You just go to bloodcalculator.com um, and you can sign up for it there. You can even order the tests through there like a direct-to-consumer. Cool. Where can people find your stuff, man? You've got a podcast. This is going to be co-listed on your podcast, which will be amazing. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't hasn't started yet, um, but it will start. So, What's it going to be called? Uh, I don't know. I don't know yet. <laughs> um, but uh, so I, I will be revamping my website. My my uh, my wife is remaking my website, which I had a while back, and it's going to look so much better than it did. But drragnar.com, Ragnar being my middle name. Okay. Um, and then I'm also at Dr. Ragnar on Twitter, and I'm at Dr. Tommy Wood on Instagram, so which Ragnar. I just started. Okay. Ragnar is R-A-G-N-A-R. Yes. Dr. Ragnar on the web. And on Twitter, and then Dr. Tommy Wood, because Dr. Ragnar was taken on Instagram. <laughs> who, I only just joined Instagram. So who is Dr. Ragnar? There's an, there's an Icelandic guy, another Icelandic guy, who's, who's well-known in Iceland as Dr. Ragnar. So, okay. so, so he, got it. he got there before me. Okay. Do you see private clients still? Yes, I do. Uh, not very many, but I have a couple... Um, because uh, most of my time currently is spent uh, working in the lab, working at university. Uh, but people can uh, reach out to me, and I, I, I don't, I can't at the moment order lab tests, but I can certainly interpret and, and, and work with people. And uh, would people just reach out to you through your website? Yeah, uh, th- uh, through the website, you, there'll be a button to click, and you can send me an email. Okay, so you guys, you should check out Tommy on all those platforms because, as I've said before, he's definitely the smartest Viking I know. He's probably one of the smartest people i know in general in the world it's been a pleasure my friend it's been awesome thank you thank you so much all right you guys i know you guys are going to dig this one so enjoy it stay radical i'll talk to you soon just wow i mean i don't even know what to say i just i wrapped that podcast with tommy and i looked at him and i was like man that's fire that was really cool so i really appreciate dr tommy wood coming on you heard his contact information at the end of the show i will put it in the show notes as well If you guys have further questions, reach out to me. Let me know what you want to hear on these podcasts. I hope you find them valuable. And I really enjoy making them. And I have got some cool people in the works. I know I mentioned I was going to have Dom D'Agostino on. He is working on the 
Nemo mission in Florida, so we had to push it back till July, but I'm hoping that he will be on soon. I've been hanging out with Ben Lynch, Dr. Ben Lynch, up here in the Pacific Northwest this week. I'm going to get him on. He is the author of Dirty Jeans. He's a super smart guy, a really great character. We went wake surfing. It was awesome. Check out my Instagram. There's video of me wake surfing on Instagram. And next week, I think we're going to get Peter Ballerstead on the podcast, so look for that one. We talk about environmental science and all that kind of stuff. All right. Check out my sponsors for the show the newsletter, paulsaladinomd.com, front slash newsletter. I really think it's worth your time, guys. I put a lot of stuff into that. I think you're going to get value out of it. Check it out. Uh, Ancestralsupplements.com. My affiliate code is saladinomd, S-A-L-A-D-I-N-O-M-D. And juve, J-O-O-V-V.com, front slash paul. Let me know what you think about these things, guys. If you check this stuff out, you use these products, if you appreciate these things, let me know what you think. Give me some feedback. Like I said, I really appreciate my Juve Light. I like what Ancestral Supplements are doing. They are great guys, and I put a lot into my newsletter. So anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I am in the process of developing a new website. It should be done in the next couple of weeks, and I'm going to have more stuff on the podcast there. It's going to also allow me to index all of the podcasts I've done. As you know, I was on some cool ones this past week. I got to do Dave Asprey. I did Bulletproof Radio. I did one with Joe Cohen from Self Hacked. I did a bunch of other ones this week. I'm going on this next week. Probably when this gets published, I'll be sitting down with Mike Mutzel for High Intensity Health. You guys, the movement is happening. I'm so excited to be a part of it. So grateful to contribute, to be helping people, to be adding to people's lives. I am not stopping anytime soon, and I'm glad that you guys are along for the ride. So stay radical, and I will see you in the podcast next week. Oh, please leave me a review. Help me on iTunes. I've got lots of great reviews. I love you guys. Anybody who's listening, if you like it, give me a review. If you don't like it, let me tell me how to make it better because I'm still learning. So leave me a review on iTunes. Subscribe. It helps my numbers. Helps it reach more people. Share it with your friends and family if you think it's valuable. And reach out to me on Instagram. It's an overwhelming space because there's a lot of people there. It's hard to get to the DMs. But if you have podcast suggestions, you can also email me directly, paulsaladinomd at gmail.com. And I am taking clients too. So I'm moving to San Diego. I'm opening a private practice there in person. And I see virtual clients all over the world. So if you want to work with me, paulsaladinomd at gmail.com. You guys, keep rocking it. Stay radical. And I will see you soon.